Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Samuel Helfont to tell us all about his book titled Iraq Against the World, Saddam, America and the Post-Cold War Order, uh, just published by Oxford University Press. This is a really interesting perspective on what Saddam Hussein was doing in Iraq um, at the end of as the Cold War was ending, as the idea of kind of what's going to happen next in terms of global geopolitics was forming, um, and takes us through understanding that using some really interesting archives um, to think about the domestic side, the international side. There's a lot of different pieces here that are woven together really well. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into all of these pieces of the book and how you've put them together, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Um, Okay, yes. Um, Well, again, thanks for having me. Uh, So I am an assistant professor of strategy and policy. Um, I am a Naval War College professor, U.S. Naval War College, uh, which is in Newport, but I am permanently in residence uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School in uh, Monterey, California, where I teach uh, courses on strategy and policy. Um, So I I came to uh, this topic, I guess, this is the second book I've written on uh, on Iraq. I'm myself uh, a veteran of the Iraq war, I served in in the Navy. Um, And then I went on to do a a PhD. uh, And as I was doing my PhD, the archives of the uh, Ba'ath Party, the ruling Ba'ath Party of Iraq, as well as some other state archives, uh, um, became available to scholars. They, they were taken out of Iraq through various means, either by the U.S. military or, or through dissidents. Um, and those became available for scholars, and they were sort of unprecedented source. Um, and so I, I wrote my first book um, on a sort of prehistory of the insurgencies in Iraq. It was called Compulsion and Religion, also the same publisher, Oxford. And uh, as I was doing that that book, um, I, I I came across in the archive itself this organization called the Iraqi Bath Party outside of Iraq, something like that. It changed its name several times. It always had some, some sort of name like that. And I was sort of intrigued because uh, it wasn't mentioned anywhere in the literature on Iraq. No one sort of discussed this. But in the internal archives, uh, of of the Iraqi state and the Ba'ath Party, uh, it was clearly um, su- super important. Um, and so, for this next project, my next project, as I finished up my first my dissertation and turned it into a book, uh, and I was looking for a second book, I, I began to look more and more at the records uh, of this particular organization. And when I realized that it was like the sort of center pillar of um, Iraqi foreign policy under um, Saddam Hussein's rule, um, especially in the 1990s um and it became possible to sort of build a narrative around uh, about iraqi foreign policy uh, and international strategy 
um, around this organization. Of course, I used other archives as well, you know, American, UN, different private papers, everything else to sort of fill in all the all the holes. Um, but it just offered a, a sort of interesting insider perspective um, from the Iraqi side um, of a story that I think most people in the international community knew pretty well, but didn't really understand the Iraqi side. So that was a sort of genesis of of, uh, of this book project. Yeah, thank you for taking us through that. Um, I admit my initial interest in the book was exactly that you used these archives, because um, I remember sort of learning about a lot of this uh, and kind of being aware of it and then going, hang on a second, wait, what about the inside perspective, right? What about the archives? Um, and so the fact that you've used them, I think is a really cool contribution to understand these pieces. As you said, a really well-known story, but from particular sides more than others. Um, so getting into that perspective, looking at these documents, piecing together all of these different things, can you take us through sort of as a starting point, what were Saddam Hussein's goals as the Cold War is ending? He's looking ahead. What is this organization? What, what's this pillar trying to achieve? Okay, well, um, so we'll take a step back, and I'm sure we'll discuss this more as, as, as we go on. But uh, Saddam sort of stumbled into being a center a central topic, uh, simple central issue um, of the transition from Cold War to post-Cold War in international history uh, with the invasion of Kuwait. Um, Iraqs, Iraqis invade Kuwait in, in August uh, of 1990, just as the Cold War is coming to an end. I mean, George H.W. Bush is negotiating German reunification as, as the Iraqis are storming across uh, the, the Kuwaiti border. Um, and just because of this timing, uh, Iraq is is made into this sort of test case for what a new post Cold War uh, order could could be. George H. W. Bush calls it the New World Order, but you know, internationally, this was something that was sort of seen as, as a way uh, if this could be resolved diplomatic, you know, not diplomatically, but through the rule of law, through the United Nations, there was an idea that, you know, maybe the, the United Nations could be uh, reinvigorated um, and, and used in a way that, uh, that it, you know, that some of, at least some of its founders had, had, had thought it would be uh, at the beginning, at the end of World War II, but, you know, uh, obviously was, was not because of the Cold War. Uh, and so Iraq is put in this sort of central position as, as this kind of test case for what um, a post-Cold War world might look like. Um, and there were all of these tools that, you know, were sort of embedded in in the United Nations, um, you know, in the post-World War II order, which had never been fully implemented, things like sanctions and, and, and using these uh, binding resolutions uh, through the UN Security Council. And so the U.S. leads an effort to do that. They, they want to, you know, First, obviously, expel Iraqis from Kuwait, but then they're putting sanctions on Iraq, and they're really trying to pin in uh, Saddam Hussein. You know, the, the Americans in particular, uh, and the British to some extent as well. But but really, the Americans are, are not happy that Saddam Hussein survived the uh, the Gulf War. They were hoping that he would have been ousted in in, in some way um, during or after the conflict. Uh, and when he wasn't, they put on this sort of containment regime. 
around him, right? Through sanctions, no-fly zones, weapons inspections, all of these things. Uh, so Saddam's goals, you know, his primary goal was to simply break out of, of this containment, right? And and sanctions, and inspections, and these no-fly zones. Um, and he wants to give, you know, as little as possible in doing that. Um, but it becomes obvious that all of these all of these sanctions and this whole containment system is is uh, is basically embedded in this post Cold War consensus, right? There's a, there was a coalition that had formed during the Gulf War, um, you know that that was broad across you know really global co- coalition led by the United States and, and the Western powers, but including you know uh, at least with tacit support Russia, many Eastern European countries. Um, that broad global um, support, and uh, the Iraqis realized that if they're going to break containment, they're going to have to break up this coalition um, at the United Nations. So uh, their really goal, their, their immediate goal, is to you know break the consensus at the Security Council, divide the Russians from the Americans, uh, divide the Europeans from the Americans, divide the Arab countries uh, from from the Western, uh, Western powers. Um, and so, you know, those are the sort of two levels of their goal, of their objectives, right? First objective is, is to break up this coalition that had formed to sort of contain Iraq. Uh, the reason that they want to do that is because they want to break out of, uh, this containment regime, which was being used as a kind of test case for, uh, post-Cold War politics. And so given these kind of the big picture goals and the individual pieces within them, what did you find was significant about the way that Saddam and these organizations approached um, these goals? Yeah, so it's actually you know very interesting to sort of take a step back um, and look at what Saddam was actually doing. I think a lot of what had been written about Iraq, had a lot of, you know, what Western analysts might call mirror imaging, just, you know, assuming that the Iraqis had similar strategies um, as other, you know, as Western powers or or, or uh, even other states in, in the Middle East, uh, which wasn't really true. Um, Saddam uh, was not a military dictator in the way that uh, we imagine or, or the way that a lot of his, you know, colleagues were in in the Middle East, right? His counterparts. Uh, He didn't serve in the military. He didn't come up through through, uh, the army or security services. Uh, He was a party man. He came up through the Ba'ath Party. The Ba'ath Party is um, a populist party, self-described populist, self-described revolutionary party. Um, And they saw themselves as uh, exercising power by mobilizing the masses, um, within Iraq, but also throughout um, the Middle East, and the party was was really the center of Saddam's uh, Saddam's power in Iraq and, and his ability to rule because he didn't come up through the military. The party actually had uh, a very contentious relationship with the military and other elements of the Iraqi state. Um, there had been a number of coups throughout the 1950s and 1960s, uh, coups and counter coups. Uh, and oftentimes it pit party officials or party operatives against uh, military officers. So when, when the Ba'athists take over uh, in the late 1960s and Saddam gradually takes control uh, in the 1970s, uh, he, he's quite skeptical 
of the military and his other state apparatuses, and he relies on the party uh, and party officials who have this sort of strategy of, of again mobilizing the masses. So he takes this this worldview, this view of politics and power, and projects it uh, into his international strategies as as well. And so almost by instinct, um, if he wants to influence what's happening in a foreign country, uh, he looks at what we might call uh, influence operations, right? Uh, trying to develop some sort of uh, political push from the ground up in, in those in those countries, the Iraqis call it a taharuk, which simply means uh, to move somebody, right? This is, uh, this is how, how they described it. Um, and so, you know, if, if he wants to, for example, influence Russian politics, he will appeal to uh, Russian nationalists, you know, inside Russia uh, and, and try to inflame them in a way that would shape Russian politics and make... Uh, you know, make it untenable for Russian leaders to um, to ally with the United States. Um, to to take uh, just one example, so it is this kind of you know almost a revolutionary outlook to international relations. It's a very populist outlook to international relations, um, and you know it plays at the level of really mass society rather than traditional diplomacy or you know, between statesmen at, at high levels and, and, and banquets and all that kind of uh, thing. Or or even, which is, I think, surprising for a lot of people, uh, even, you know, um, at the military level. I mean, Saddam, yeah, sure, he wore the uniform and, and you know, he gave himself a lot of medals and accolades. Uh, but really, he wasn't a military uh, man at, at heart. He was uh, he was a populist at heart, and that's reflected in his his foreign policy. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, um, especially given how much he walked around in military uniforms, right? It's easy to forget this different background and priorities. Um, so I think that's a really helpful thing to help us understand. Um, now that we have this idea of goals and sort of where he's coming from in a lot of ways, can you tell us about some of the strategies and sort of specific operations that were used by Ba'athist organizations to try and actually achieve this? Yeah, so... They have, first of all, we should say that they're quite flexible, right? Uh, and the strategies change, uh, you know, gradually throughout the uh, 1990s, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about. Um, because at, at the beginning of the 1990s, uh, the Iraqis are in a certain geopolitical position, right? They, they, their military has been crushed. Uh, their economy has been, has been crushed. Um, they're under these really strict sanctions. They have no control or, or no ability to sell oil, so they don't really have an economic lever in their um, in their foreign policy toolkit. So they really are relying on these kinds of influence operations uh, in the early 1990s. As the 1990s progress, um, they get more and more control of their oil through an oil for food program, and economics becomes a more important part um, uh, of their strategies. But in the early 1990s, what they are initially trying to do is first just reestablish contacts with uh, with different groups around the world who, or establish contacts with different groups around the world who uh, might want to support them. There is a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, I'm call it groundswell. There, there is a movement of people uh, around the world who are, um, you know, for one reason or another, against 
uh, U.S. and U.N. policies in uh, Iraq, whether because they're a sort of, an, uh, you know, Western anti-war movement, a sort of peace activist, or they could be um, sort of conservative isolationists in the West, or they could be Arab nationalists or Islamists, uh, you know, in the Middle East or, you know, Islamists in the broader Muslim uh, Muslim world as well. They could be, you know, nationalists in places like Russia who were, um, who were unhappy with, um, uh, with with how the the post cold war was turning out, uh, you know, was shaping up where America had emerged as just this, you know, as a single source of single, you know, a, a unipolar uh, power that was sort of trying to dictate to the world. Um, there was a lot of people that were upset with this. Uh, a lot of people didn't like U.S. and U.N. policies in uh, in Iraq, and the Iraqis began to sort of reach out to these different groups. Uh, they're doing so usually clandestinely, right? They won't say, hey, I'm, I'm a member of the Ba'ath Party or the Iraqi Intelligence Service. Uh, they'll simply say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an Iraqi and I'm here in Germany and I, uh, and, you know, my family's suffering uh, back home. And I understand that you also don't like uh, Western policies in, in Iraq. And, uh, you know, maybe we can work together to try to create a movement to, to change that. Um, and so the, they were doing this all over the place. Uh, they, they had these Ba'athist operatives working in these different circles. And behind the scenes, they were sort of tying them all together, bringing some of these groups that wouldn't have necessarily had contact with each other, right? A, uh, a right-wing isolationist and a, um, you know, a sort of, or, or a peace activist and uh, an Islamist who was a sort of militant um, you know, wouldn't necessarily be running in the same circles, and, and the Baathists could make sure they could like tie all their their um, their activities together, make sure everyone is sort of rowing in the same direction, uh, and so that that was their their sort of uh, their plan. It worked well in some places; it didn't work well in other places, right? Uh, in the United States, uh, for example, was a, a very hostile environment for the Iraqis. They didn't have much. Uh, success in finding partners in the United States. They did find some, but it, but but not as much as they found, uh, for example, in Europe. Um, and in Europe, it was nowhere near the amount of support they were getting in, um, in in the Middle East. So they're initially just trying to sort of build up uh, these networks. And as they're building up these networks, they're attempting to, uh, they eventually try to get these groups to pressure um, their governments into changing their policies on Iraq or defecting from um, from the coalition. Uh, again, I mean, we could talk more about you know oil for food later. But a- a- as oil becomes, as Iraq gains control of its its oil um, more and more, right? It never gets complete control of it until two thousand and three, until after the war. Um, but a- as Iraq gets more and more control of its oil. Um, it has this economic lever as well, right? So it would create economic incentives to go along with these sort of political operations, uh, especially in in Western states, right? Um, so that they would they would you know essentially bribe people um, if you you know can adopt these certain policies, we can sell you this oil um, at below market at below market prices. That, you know you'll make a lot of money. Uh, and again, this went hand in hand with these other influence operations that the Iraqis were were uh, carrying out, because uh, you know it wasn't a great narrative if you were an American or a Western European politician or 
activists and you stood to benefit from you know economically from Iraqi oil that that was going to be your selling point no you, you know you'd have to um you'd have to uh you know speak about the suffering of, of Iraqis which was which was which was true I, sh- I should emphasize I should emphasize that right just because the Iraqis instrumentalized um you know and they did right there was a lot of suffering in Iraq uh, as a result of these sanctions you know children were dying unnecessarily people didn't have food they didn't have medicine um, they didn't have any money they were starving uh, it was really not a great situation in Iraq uh, the, the Iraqis instrumentalized this uh, politically in order to pressure other governments around the world um, to abandon this containment because they were you know the Iraqis blamed uh, the, this containment regime for the suffering uh, inside of Iraq. Um, but just because the Iraqis were were doing this doesn't mean that the suffering wasn't real, right? Those two things can exist at the same time, right? That that the suffering was real in Iraq, and that the Iraqis were also using that suffering um, to sort of break up uh, this, you know, post Cold War order or attempt to break it up so that they could get out of the containment uh, regime. Hmm. Very important to keep both of those things in mind. Thinking about um, the different persuasions and campaigns that were going on, I'm wondering if we can take a moment to look at a particular group um, of people that Iraq was trying to uh, get support from, which would be Islamist support, uh, religiously based support. How was sort of how, how was support from this these groups these actors attempted to be recruited um, and to what extent was it successful was it more or less successful than other kinds of groups yeah um, so it's it's a great one to look at for a number of reasons because uh, you know it was probably some of the, they were probably some of the greatest supporters of Iraq um, but it's also worth thinking about as you said was it successful right uh, one of the hardest things to deal with um, when you deal with a topic like this or influence operations uh, is whether or not something was uh, successful. Did the, you know, the Iraqis were doing all these things, but did they have any any effect, uh, which is, is a hard question to answer because, um, and the Islamists are a good way to, to sort of dig into this, right? But, but the reason it's hard to answer is uh, because, you know, these, these influence operations, they only work if you're sort of pushing on an open door. Right, um, they they can take existing tendencies, existing you know feelings and interests, and they can exasperate them, and they could they could you know pull on threads that that are already there. Um, but these types of operations can't create you know geopolitical uh, situations out of out of thin air. Right, they they can't persuade a country to act against its interests. They can't persuade groups to go against their own values or their own inclinations. But if the inclination is there, um, then the Iraqis can get a uh, you know a person or a group or a state uh, to act on that inclination in a way that they might not have. Right, uh, and that's really the area where uh, the, the the Iraqis, I would argue, um, were successful. And the Islamists are a, uh, are, are a great example of this, right? So um, the Ba'athists themselves have a very interesting relationship with Islam. Um, this founding intellectual 
a man named Michel Aflac was uh, a Christian. He was a, a Christian from Syria, um, but he, he had um, a sort of love for Islam as uh, as an Arab religion. Um, there's some pretty good evidence that he actually converted uh, to Islam um, later in life. Um, and the Ba'athists in Iraq, while they were inside of Iraq, they were they didn't like Islamists. They saw Islamists as a rival, as rival, um, you know, as rival political party, rival political parties, rival political trends, uh, and they were very, very harshly, uh, they very harshly suppressed any Islamist groups or ideas or people inside of uh, Iraq. But um, they had a love for Islam as a Arab religion, right? As as uh, as something deeply entwined with their understanding of Arab nationalism. Um, they also had, you know, they had there was a very strong uh, communist party in Iraq in the mid twentieth century, and the Baathists liked to distinguish themselves from this communist party by showing that the Baathists uh, were believers in God, right? Unlike these atheistic. Uh, communist. So um, the idea of Islam and belief was an important part of, of uh, Ba'athist ideology, even if they themselves weren't Islamists, right? They didn't want to impose Islamic law. Um, they viewed internationally, when, we look at it, when they looked internationally, they saw themselves as, uh, as uh, wanting to unite the Arab world, you know, not necessarily the Islamic world. Um, so, but all that being said, uh, they felt that they could use their position, even though they didn't like Islamists and they didn't tolerate inside of Iraq, they thought that they could use this sort of love for Islam, this appreciation for Islam, this central place that they put Islam in their ideology to attract or, or to position to to uh, present themselves to Islamists outside of Iraq as good Muslims who were under attack um, from non-Muslims abroad. Right? They were Arab Muslims being attacked by Western. Uh, infidels, you know, and you know this narrative uh, was appealing for for Islamists. So Islamists, you know, were at first during the Gulf War quite unsure about what to make of of um, of Iraq and this invasion of of Kuwait. Um, you know, this is one Muslim Arab country attacking another Muslim Arab country, right? The Kuwaitis, the Gulf Arabs in general, Saudis had been uh, big supporters of uh, Islamist politics throughout the mid-20th century. Um, and so there was a lot of hesitation there. Um, after, as the war, you know, continues and it becomes a sort of, you know, American-led onslaught against Iraq, um, the inclination of, of Islamists, I think, was to... Um, uh, to support Saddam against what they saw as as you know this Western onslaught, um, but that inclination wasn't necessarily going to lead to actions. Right? Um, again, they were sort of divided about you know how, how to think about this. What about the Kuwaitis? What about our sponsors in places like Saudi Arabia, uh, who have been helping us all, all of these years? Um, but the Iraqis are able to use influence operations to develop networks during the Gulf War and then especially after the Gulf War is over, right, uh, to say all the right things uh, to Islamists, right, to you know, present themselves in this, in this way as, as, as Muslims who are under attack by, by, by non-Muslims and uh, are able to win over Islamists and get them to support 
Iraq, not just get them to support Iraq, but as the 90s, uh, 1990s continue, um, the Iraqis are able to sort of build networks of Islamic support, uh, or Islamist support, um, especially throughout the Middle East. And whenever there was a crisis or a stirrup, um, they could activate those networks. And you can see them doing it in, in the Iraqi archives, uh, which would bring, you know, thousands of, of, of Islamist, you know, Muslim brothers or whoever else uh, out onto the streets of places like Cairo uh, and Amman, right? And this was a way for the Iraqis to, um, to pressure those regimes into not supporting uh, the Americans or adopting certain, um, certain policies, because if you're, you know, authoritarian state like Egypt or, uh, or Jordan, um, you know, this is uh, an important threat. This is a, a big threat. If, if all of a sudden there are thousands of, of people out on the street uh, protesting against your government, and oftentimes these these protests would would, would turn uh, would turn violent, right? So there, I think you know the Islamists were inclined to sort of oppose American uh, policies and, and Western policies in Iraq, uh, but what the Iraqis do by building up these networks. Um, and by saying all the right things is turn those inclinations into uh, actions which actually would affect uh, the policies of these different regimes um, in the region. Mm. Thank you for taking us through those pieces. I agree. It's really in, in some ways straightforward to go, well, here's what the attempt was, right? Here's what the messaging was. Here's who talked to whom. It's a very different thing to go, well, and what impact did that have? Um, so piecing all of that together, I think, is really helpful and really interesting. Um, and I sort of want to say on that kind of theme, I suppose, thinking about the Gulf War, the early 90s, very much this idea of the Cold War's ending, what is, oh, wait, this is the new case study of what the new UN is going to look like. Um, can you tell us about the shift in the narrative, how Saddam shifted the narrative about Iraq at this moment, how was it done? Why was it done? And what impact did it have? Yeah, um, that's it's a good question. It also gets at you know another part of of uh, when Iraqis had success and why. Um, and you know the Iraqis they changed their own narrative about themselves uh, during the Gulf War, uh, and they do this because uh, they. And they will continue to, to do this throughout the 1990s. They, they remain flexible. They see what works, right? There's a sort of, I think, again, another trope you might have of a of an authoritarian or even totalitarian regime uh, like Saddam's Iraq, that this was just, you know, everything was dictated from the top down. They were inflexible. You know, um, people couldn't, um, they couldn't you know, tell the leader that there was anything wrong. None of that seems to really be true. Of course, there are some of some things like that, right? People do get punished uh, in Iraq for saying for saying the wrong things. Uh, but really, the regime was open to internal critiques and would would adapt and would would change their their policies and uh, the way that they presented themselves to the world based on these internal critiques. And the Gulf War, uh, the way the Iraqis change. Uh, the way they present themselves to the world during the Gulf War is a great example of this flexibility, right? Uh, at the beginning of the Gulf War, uh, as Iraq is invading Kuwait, 
you know, when Saddam is having his sort of internal discussions behind closed doors, you know, we have all these tapes, uh, uh, recordings of him having these, these, uh, these discussions with his, his policy advisors and his, you know, senior leader, other senior leaders in Iraq, which are, are really fascinating. Um, and he thinks as he's invading Kuwait that he needs to present himself as a strong Arab leader. Right. And when the U.S. starts making noise that they're going to uh, oppose him, he thinks that if he can be this strong Arab leader that's willing and able to stand up uh, to Western powers, that this is actually this is going to be the key um, to his success. Right. That this will rally everybody um, behind him, you know, behind basically Iraq uh, uh you know, Iraq presenting Iraq from a position of strength will rally everyone behind him. Um, I think you know Saddam completely underestimates what he's going to face during the Gulf War. Um, you know, the U.S. comes in with overwhelming uh, you know, technology, power, force, uh, and the Iraqi—it's really a huge mismatch that the Iraqis are not uh, prepared for. Uh, but the U.S., you know also oversteps in, in, in several places, especially with their um, their air campaign. They, air, they have a strategic bombing campaign that the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force insists on because they have all sorts of parochial interests, you know, internal to the Air Force that they're trying to, you know, uh, demonstrate certain capabilities. Um, and it involves a strategic bombing uh, in downtown Baghdad because the Air Force wants to show that they can win the war on the, on their own. Right. Uh, and that what the army is doing on the ground isn't as important as what they can do. Um, and so they try to they, they have the strategic bombing campaign in, in, deep inside uh, Baghdad um, and it inevitably, um, you know, kills civilians. And in one one case in particular, uh, there's a bunker in the U.S. I think it's a command and control center um, and it might have been used for that, but what its primary use was, uh, was as a uh, bomb shelter for the civilian population of this neighborhood in Baghdad. And uh, the U.S. bombs it, uh, and over 400 civilians uh, are, are killed in this, uh, in this bombing. Uh, and this creates an uproar around the world. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, even American allies are saying, hey, what are we doing here? You know, uh, maybe we should maybe we should we should we should end this now. Maybe we shouldn't continue. Uh, the U.S. isn't willing to you know, discontinue the war, but they do stop uh, the strategic bombing campaign. So the White House itself basically steps in and says, tells the Air Force, you can't do that anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, all of these, you know, obviously dead civilians. Uh, it becomes clear to the Iraqis that um, that this is a more powerful weapon for them than any anti-aircraft, you know, uh, battery or missile that that they uh, that they have. Right? It's it's the sight of dead civilians that stops a bombing campaign, not Iraqi weapons, not Iraqi strength. It's actually Iraqi weakness, right? Presenting themselves as as not as as a strong power standing up to the West, uh, but as a weak as 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 a weak state that's being bullied right by this uh, overwhelming western power uh, is actually a much better narrative for them right so i mean i spoke with some journalists that were in iraq uh during this time and uh what they said was you know prior to this bombing of this bunker the al-amariya bunker um the iraqis wouldn't let 
they wouldn't allow foreign journalists to see dead bodies, dead Iraqi bodies, because they were trying to present this, you know, themselves uh, as strong, right? Um, and but afterwards, they realized that actually there's strength and weakness. And following the bombing of this bunker, the Iraqis uh, don't want to show journalists anything except for dead Iraqi bodies, right? Um, and this actually, uh, you know, it creates some traction. Um, throughout the Middle East and uh, in, in the West um, as well, so that the Iraqis are actually able to get a lot of sympathy. And this becomes one of the, the pillars uh, of their strategies to break up um, the coalition that had formed around Iraq during the war and that was enforced in containment in the 1990s to say that the situation in Iraq is just so bad. Uh, and, and again, it, it really was uh, pretty horrible. Um, that the containment regime becomes politically not like impossible to maintain um, because it's seen as hurting uh, this, you know, uh, helpless Iraqi civilian population. Um, and so, you know, during the Gulf War, the Iraqis make the switch uh, from presenting themselves as this strong Arab power to um, a weak power um, that is sort of helpless and uh, is being you know, bullied and, uh, and, uh, suffering, uh, from, from Western, from the Western powers. And this becomes a very powerful narrative that they will latch onto and, uh, will help, you know, uh, drive a wedge into the, the coalition, um, as the 1990s progress. And in addition to those sort of I'm not immediate effects because obviously they're pretty big ones, but kind of effects in terms of how that particular crisis is perceived and what the policies are around the coalition. Um, I almost want to take it a little bit bigger. Uh, how did these debates, these contentions within the coalition of hang on, wait a second, if this is the new narrative, you know, we really can't be having these kinds of bombing campaigns, for example. If we think in the even bigger picture, how did these sorts of debates, do you think, impact larger discussions about, for example, what should the UN be now that the Cold War is over? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, at first, um, there's a lot of confidence in um, in, the, in the UN, right? Um, this is seen, um, and it's interesting, right? When you look at like these no-fly zones or the sanctions that were in place in Iraq um, during the Gulf War and in the early uh, 1990s, immediate aftermath of the Gulf War, um, there was a broad consensus that these sanctions were actually uh, a, a very good thing, right? And, and even from from people who um, and I shouldn't say a broad consensus. There was always there was always detractors, and there was immediately there was people who who, who didn't like it. But there were there was uh, there was a, a good amount of support for sanctions as something that were seen as almost you know from peace activists for anti-war activists saw sanctions as something that could be an alternative to war. Right, uh, that no-fly zones, enforcing international law, enforcing a UN resolution, um, were seen as a great way to sort of uh, create a, a liberal international order. Right, that would be more humane, more peaceful. Um, all of these, uh, all of these sorts of things. Um, the results, the actual results, though, 
Um, you know, obviously you have this bombing campaign in Iraq. The Al Amariya bunker is the most egregious of 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 uh, you know egregious situation. But there's others. You know, there's power plants that are bombed. Um, you know, the, the infrastructure in Iraq is is really just taken apart. So that after the war, you have you know tens of thousands of people that are homeless. Right? You have people that are getting cholera. There's there's no drinking water. Uh, medicine is is uh is scarce and um a lot of people you know first gradually and then it sort of picks up steam they, they start to say well wait a minute this doesn't seem like this more humane international order that we were um you know th- that that we had that we had discussed or, or that we thought we were implementing right um and so you you see you know movements in a few different directions internationally throughout the 1990s. One is the idea that well, we can actually make sanctions better. We can have this idea of smart sanctions, right? Uh, which which aren't you know the, the sanctions that were put on Iraq were just broad against the whole country, right? But they said well, we can target certain people. Other people just kind of turn against the idea of, of sanctions altogether, right? Um, that you know any kind this kind of sanctions it's just hurting the Iraqi people. Um, you know, using there was an idea during the Gulf War. Right. Um, you see the UN Secretary General, for example, talking about how, you know, yes, we're using military action, but this is not, you know, this is different than than previous wars, right? Because this is done to sort of enforce peace, right? So yes, we're using military actions, but it's something as a different category. Um, and that idea fades, right, pretty quickly into the 1990s um, as, you know, there's more and more suffering in Iraq, more people are dying in these, uh, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a result of, of enforcing these UN resolutions. Um, and people begin to see, you know, you actions even that were done with the UN blessing as just another type of war um, and, you know, just as bad and as destructive uh, as any other type of, uh, of war. Um, the issue that, that that causes internationally is, you know, and, and what, you know, particularly U.S. leaders will argue um, as, as other leaders are, are defecting is if you don't have a means of enforcement, then you really don't have international law at all, right? Because anyone can just break the rules and, and there's no consequences, right? Um, you know, and so they're left in a kind of dilemma, right? Do you want to just have, do you want to have a rules-based order? If you have a rules-based order, you have to enforce it, right? Uh, but enforcing it often becomes, uh, you know, uh bloody and, and people suffer uh and uh you know that that also uh is problematic um and so you know these debates are going on throughout the 1990s but it's clearly the shift is ha- is, is going from uh hey listen we're going to have a rules based order we need to enforce it yes you know um there's going to be some things that are unpleasant but it's better than the alternative which is basically just the rule of the jungle right this kind of return to great power competition and great power politics, uh, which could lead to um, a, a broader war. Um, as the 1990s go and the Iraqis are suffering more and more, uh, ideas begin to shift away from that this enforcement is something that is, is useful and, um, and, and that is just and that can be you know, justified um, uh, back towards you know, the idea that you know, it's illegitimate. Um, to, in, to use military force in this way, even if you have a UN uh, 
you know, even if you're enforcing international law, right, through a UN Security Council uh, resolution, and that has all sorts of, you know, follow-on effects about, you know, the rules-based system or the rule of law or the liberal international order, and, and all of these things get tied up into this Iraq case as as different, you know, statesmen and, and political leaders are trying to negotiate, you know, how do you handle a state that is clearly violating uh, the rules? Speaking of states that violate rules, can we bring in Russia a little bit? Um, and thank you for giving that me that lovely link. Um, can we talk a bit about the relationships that were built between Iraq and Russia um, during this initial kind of Gulf War period through the 90s? Um, what did those relationships look like and sort of what impact did that, in a lot of ways, bilateral relationship have on this broader conversation about the rules-based order? Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting case, and I think you know uh, a part of what you know the main thing I'm doing in this book is is just simply obviously giving uh, the uh, say the Iraqi side, but but looking at Iraqi strategies and foreign policies uh, through throughout this period. But I'm trying to also make uh, some broader points that you can use these these Iraqi records um, to understand international and global history. Of the of the Cold War or the post Cold War, um, more broadly, and and that they actually offer insights uh, that are unique and that you can't really get anywhere else. Um, and the Russia case, I think, is a is a fantastic um, example of this. Uh, so the Iraqis had been, you know, during the Cold War, uh, clearly um, on on the the Russian side, you know, the, the Soviet side. Um, they were not aligned officially. Uh, but they were, you know, they, they were getting all their weapons and political support uh, from Moscow. There was contentious relationship between Baghdad and Moscow at, at, at various periods, but clearly they um, um, they they were on the Soviet side during the um, the Cold War, uh, and they expected that Moscow would continue to support them, and they were sort of taken aback um, in 1990 and 1991 when um, the Russians just, you know, basically fold and, and allow the Americans tacitly support, actually. Um, they, don't, they don't join the coalition, but they vote with the, with the Americans at the UN uh, against Iraq. They do nothing to um, prevent, to try to prevent um, the Gulf War. Um, they vote to impose sanctions and, and uh, you know, and everything else during 1990 and 1991. Uh, so the Iraqis are, are very upset, <laughs> and you know the reports coming out uh, of Iraqi bathists and Iraqi diplomats that are in in Russia are, you know, uh, they're they're really upset in 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 1990 and 1991. Uh, but they don't. Again, they stay flexible, um, and they try they try out different strategies and tactics uh, just to see what what will work. Right. So as uh, Russia is emerging from the Soviet Union. Um, the Iraqis at first try to reach out to Yeltsin, you know, President Yeltsin, who's going to be the, the leader of, of Russia, uh, and they're rebuffed, right? Yeltsin basically tells, you know, he ignores them, he won't take their calls. It's clear that Yeltsin um, wants to see Russia as a new Russia um, and leave all that Soviet stuff behind. The new Russia, Yeltsin, you know, led by Yeltsin, is going to be, you know, siding with. Uh, the U.S. on international issues. They're going to be, you know, building this post-Cold War international system, uh, and Russia is going to be um, a part of that. Um, so the Iraqis are are upset, 
you know, with this uh, getting the cold shoulder from Yeltsin. And what they decide to do um, in in uh, really 1991 and 1992 is go to the Russian opposition. Yeltsin, you know, uh, has opposition. There's opposition from nationalists, sort of, you know, more hardcore Russian nationalists uh, and the remnants of, of the, the Russian Communist Party. And so the Iraqis go to these nationalists and to uh, the communists and say, hey, you know, Yeltsin uh, is giving us a cold shoulder, uh, but this could be a great issue for you. This could be a sort of wedge issue uh, for the opposition uh, because, you know, this is a traditional Russian, where we Iraqis are a traditional Russian ally and we're just being trampled over by the West and Yeltsin is just letting it happen. Uh, so this could be an important issue. You can You can use this against Yeltsin to get you know, votes and, and political support uh, in in Russian elections. Uh, and the opposition, the Russian opposition agrees and says, oh, yeah, you know, th- this sounds like, you know, we can do this, right? This is in, in really already in 1991 that they're, that they're doing this. Um, and, you know, in the summer and into the fall of, of 1991. And uh, after, and they start, so the, the, Iraqis start bringing this Russian opposition to Baghdad, and they they go. The Russian opposition goes back to to Russia, and they start you know making speeches and and you know speaking to the press and trying to make the case that you know uh, that Yeltsin isn't uh, supporting uh, traditional Russian allies and he's just kowtowing you know to Western leaders against Russian interest. Um, and this begins to become, uh, you know, a small issue within Russian politics. And then the Iraqis go back. This is what's interesting. They, they go back to Yeltsin and and the leadership, and they say, you know, I know you said you weren't really interested in uh, in meeting with us, but look, this has become a wedge issue for you. This is hurting you politically, and it doesn't have to. Well, why don't you just, you know, come come over and and uh, and uh, we'll reestablish ties, um, and you know, maybe you can help us out. Uh, and by the way, we have a lot of oil. You know, we will eventually, uh, which you know, um, so eventually there will be some money here. Uh, and Yeltsin, you know, is looking at this this political domestic political opposition that he's he's facing over the issue and says, you know what? Okay, fine. Uh, and by the end of 1991 and into 1992, um, the the Russians are now the, the Russian leadership is now starting to say, okay. Um, we're going to start working with the Iraqis. We're going to reestablish ties. We're going to start, you know, rebuilding uh, this relationship and helping the Iraqis out, right? Um, that what that means is that they're going to be that that Yeltsin and, and the Russian leadership, uh, in you know, as early as 1992, are going to be fi- find themselves in conflict uh, with the United States over the nature. Um, you know, in 1992, basically, uh, this all develops. It all comes to a head in 1992 um, over the nature of what the post-Cold War order is going to be because the United States has put Iraq as this test case for all these different, you know, UN sanctions and UN and binding U.S. resolutions and, uh, and enforcement and international law. And Iraq is this important test case that the U.S. wants to show that the system can work. Uh, and by 1992, Iraqi documents show that um, the Russians are already defecting from uh, this policy on Iraq. And by extension, um, the post-Cold War order 
in general, right? Um, so you don't, I've gone through, you know, the existing American files, for example, or UN records. Um, you, you don't see that in those those records, but in the Iraqi records, it's, it's, it's fairly clear that, um, that the Russians are already sort of pulling out of uh, of this post Cold War consensus, right? Um, as early as, as as 1992, right before the Balkan crisis, before NATO expansion, uh, you know, Iraq has already sort of, you know, used these sort of domestic Russian politics to uh, to shift Russia and to start pulling them out of of this uh, this post Cold War. Uh, consensus. So it's, it's it's very important for Iraqi history, but it's also a, a sort of sort of important for uh, international history and post Cold War global history uh, more generally. Absolutely no, and that's why I'm really glad. I was very interested to see it in the book, and obviously I had to ask you about it. So thank you for explaining the different levels of impact there. Um, staying on this idea of kind of Iraq's diff- relations with different countries and the impact it had, um, could we move closer to Iraq itself and think about Iraqi relations with nearby states like Jordan or Qatar? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, there were, the Iraqis had had you know less support in the United States. They had more support uh, in Europe, but even the greatest amount of support they they had was um, in in the Middle East um, itself. And uh, you know the Iraqis when they when they looked out at the Middle East, you know the U.S. looked out at the Middle East at during the Gulf War and then the, the early you know nineteen nineties as there's going to be a new Middle East. There's going to be changes. Right, you know, there's a peace process with Israel. There's all these things going on. The the the, the Gulf country, the Gulf Arab countries are going to, you know, uh, join together. They're going to be this block of of, of moderation. Uh, the the Iraqis didn't see that um, at all. They saw that there was going to be continued problems, and um, they actually maintain ties uh, with with several uh, Middle Eastern states. Two of them that are quite important are the two that you mentioned, right? Uh, Qatar and uh, and Jordan, uh, Jordan probably the most important, right? Jordan um, is traditionally a quite poor, rather un- underdeveloped uh, state. They don't have, you know, any oil, uh, you know that that's you know, funding them, right? Um, and so they've traditionally been, you know, someone always dependent on on a state that's always dependent on outsiders. Um, because of uh, really beginning in the 1980s with the Iran-Iraq War, the the Persian Gulf was cut off um, from shipping, or at least shipping was more difficult in, in the Persian Gulf because the Iranians would would um, uh, would try to stop Iraqi shipping. So the Iraqis developed another outlet, um, a land route through Jordan. Uh, and there had been long history with Jordan, right? Uh, you know, going all the way back into the 20th century. There, there's strong ties there. Some of the tribes go across. Um, the Iraqi, you know, in, in, after World War One, there's uh, Hashemite monarchies. Two brothers rule Iraq and and um, and Jordan. So there's a, there's a long history there to begin with. But it really develops in the 1980s because uh, the Iraqis develop a land route through Jordan through to um, uh, to Aqaba, and so they could get an outlet to the sea. Uh, 
in, in, in the Red Sea. Uh, and so the Iraqis have developed, they, they put all this economic development into Jordan, right? Um, and Jordan is really dependent economically on Iraq, you know, all this oil money that's helped develop Jordan. And so even though Jordan is a, uh, a pro-Western um, a pro-Western state, uh, one of the most pro-Western Middle Eastern or Arab states, uh, it doesn't join the Gulf War uh, coalition. The other issue that the Jordanians have is that something like, no one knows the exact numbers, but probably at least half the Jordanian population uh, are of Palestinian origin, right? They're, they're from uh, the Western bank of, of the Jordan River, uh, and they had moved over in one of the waves of refugees or you know, escaping war. Um into Jordan, right? And Saddam had presented himself as this champion of of the Palestinian uh, cause. I mean, he during the Gulf War, he even shoots missiles at at, at Tel Aviv, uh, Scud missiles to to sort of show that you know um, he is the, the real champion of the Palestinian cause. And this is this is quite popular uh, among the Palestinian communities of Jordan. So the the combination of um, of uh, this Jordanian economic interest, and then uh, the political support for Saddam and his actions uh, keeps Jordan on the sidelines during um, during the Gulf War, uh, and the Iraqis, you know, understand that this is uh, important for them um, because it is an outlet, right, overland um, to the sea um, that they can maintain, and so they spend a lot of time. Um, you know, uh, trying to shape Jordanian politics in a way that will keep that outlet open. For example, you know, uh, Saddam is buying, you know, whole houses and neighborhoods uh, for Jordanian uh, journalists to live in, right? Um, they're, they're pouring tons of, of money and, and people into Jordan in order to, uh, you know, building these networks of support within Jordan uh, that are going to make, uh, keep Jordan uh, from basically joining the coalition against Iraq. And it's essential geopolitically just because, you know, the Iraqis then have this land route out, which is not being, um, that is not enforcing sanctions. So food, um, you know, there's oil smuggling that's going out, uh, luxury goods that, that are flowing into, into Iraq, uh, from Jordan. This causes all sorts of problems, um, for the West, right? There's actually even a blockade at one point of, uh, of the Jordanian port in, in, in Aqaba to try to get the Jordanians to, um, uh, to cooperate more. Uh, and over the course of the 1990s, you know, there, there is more and more tension between Jordan and Iraq, but that, that lifeline uh, for Iraq never ends, right? So Jordan provides, because the Iraqis are able to maintain uh, you know, political support within Jordan, not necessarily of the king himself, but of the population. The king can't, the king of Jordan cannot uh, uh, politically, you know, create a rupture uh, with Iraq. Um, and then that means that despite the sanctions, the Iraqis are still able to ha have this lifeline that goes um, through Jordan. Qatar is, uh, is a little bit different uh, because they are separated from Iraq by uh by, you know, mostly by the sea, right? Or Kuwait, you know, there's a land, you can go through the land, Kuwait and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, but those, those states are, are both against, um, um, you know, those states are very anti-Iraq, right? So, so they're, they're not going to allow that, that land bridge. And the U.S. Navy is in the northern Persian Gulf. And so, you know, Qatar doesn't have this, it can't provide this economic lifeline in the same way uh, that Jordan can. But Qatar, 
uh, interesting, uh, never, interestingly, ne- never breaks relations with, um, with Iraq, diplomatic relations, right? The Iraqi ambassador remains in Doha throughout the Gulf crisis. Uh, and, you know, Qatar is, is, is incorporated in the 1990s into this security infrastructure uh, uh, in the Gulf, right? Um, I mean, the brief history is that the U.S. had, had relied on Saudi Arabia and Iran, right, as the two pillars, um, you know, to sort of maintain Gulf security. Then Iran falls during the, the, the revolution. Uh, but Iran is balanced by Iraq up until 1990. Um, and then, you know, now Iraq is no longer balancing um, against Iran. So the U.S. decides in the 1990s in the wake of the Gulf War that they have to build up uh, the Gulf Arabs to be able to balance against Iran and maintain Gulf security so that all the oil could go out. Um, Qatar is very much a part of that. You know, there's bases being built, Udid Air Base, for example. Uh, but what's interesting is while the countries are supporting, are doing this with the United States, they're also uh, continue to keep Iraq, tell Iraqis what's going on. Uh, they continue to aid the Iraqis. They, they keep talk about uh, how they can help the Iraqis to uh, reestablish their position, basically at the expense of, um, of the United States. And it becomes this important outpost um, for Iraq throughout the Persian Gulf, where they can pay attention to what's going on. They can find, for example, in Saudi Arabia, uh, groups, they can work through, Doha, through their people that are in Qatar, um, they can find people in Saudi Arabia, you know, different Islamist groups, for example, uh, that are anti uh, against the Saudi monarchy, right? And the Iraqis can help them to sort of cause all sorts of problems in uh, in Saudi Arabia itself or in um, in other Gulf states. So, um, you know, Qatar becomes this important sort of base for the Iraqis in in the Persian Gulf itself uh, that allow it to, you know understand what's happening in the region, but also attempt to influence it um, as well. Very interesting case studies. Um, We've talked obviously about the US somewhat, um, kind of brought it into various parts of the answers, but I'd love to kind of focus on it a little bit more uh, specifically, especially kind of not just the Gulf War piece, but towards the later part of the 90s. Um, You describe a really interesting quotation, quote, the slow but relentless press of Iraqi operations, and that this did actually have an impact on the Clinton administration, despite kind of the famous Clinton focus being on domestic issues within the US. So can you tell us about this slow and relentless press and its effects? Sure. Um, So the Clinton administration, yes, they, they were focused on, you know, domestic uh, issues. They, they, they saw the end of the Cold War, there's going to be a peace dividend, right? Clinton himself doesn't have really any foreign policy um, experience, and he wins on, on he, you know, he comes to office in the United States with the idea that they're going to, you know, focus on, on domestic. It's the economy stupid was the, was the unofficial uh, slogan of his, his campaign. But he was very committed um, to this idea of, you know, he doesn't use the term New World Order like Bush does, but uh, it's the same thing, the liberal international order, right? And that the UN is going to be uh, at the center of American foreign policy, this sort of, you know, liberal internationalism, right? Um, you know, he elevates uh, Madeleine Albright. She, you know, she becomes the Secretary of State in his second term, but in his first term in the early 1990s, she's the 
the uh, American ambassador to the United Nations, and he elevates her position up to a cabinet level uh, position, you know, on the same level as Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State. Um, so the UN is seen as this this sort of vital uh, institution, uh, and Iraq uh, again, you know, is at the center um, of all of, of of this of these you know of this outlook and these strategies because again it, it is this test case for you know how the um the international system the post-cold war international system should function can these tools actually work right uh can they pin in uh, a state like iraq can they can they make a rogue you know enforce international law even in a place where you have a rogue state trying to um to undermine it right um, and so, you know, the Iraqis have these operations going on uh, globally, but in the United States as as well. Um, they're attempting all sorts of things. And as I mentioned, they, you know, they have a lot of trouble. They admit this. They admit that they have a lot of trouble in, in the United States. Um, but, you know, they're reaching out to, you know, there's congressmen in Texas, for example, who have oil in their district. And they think, hey, this is, you know, uh, maybe we can get this congressman to uh, to support us. Again, clandestinely, the congressmen don't know uh, that they're being targeted or, or different um, celebrities uh, in the United States. Um, sometimes they target them directly. Right. Um, and, you know, they have various level varying levels of success. There are people they bring in. Right. There are there are groups that hold. For example, you know, there are Iraqi-backed groups uh, or Iraqi front organizations that hold, you know, charity dinners for, you know, Iraqi children. And they, they'll get people like Muhammad Ali to come in and speak, you know, and, and you know, these celebrities or politicians have no idea that they're they're working with, you know, Ba'athist. Um, or at least, you know, they, they probably don't know. Right? I can't say for sure. Um, um, and, and, you know, they're, they think that they're just worried about the suffering, which again is very real, of innocent Iraqis inside of Iraq because of um, of sanctions and no-fly zones and everything else. Um, and, you know, the Clinton administration is, it, it, at first, doesn't quite understand what they want to do about this, right? Um, when they first come into office, there are Iraqis that have these sort of front organizations in the United States, and they're reaching out to the Clinton administration. And Clinton himself, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, who's also you know involved in this, are corresponding with these groups. And, and they, you know, at first they they sort of always you know they say that we're just establishing our policy and we're trying to figure out you know what's going to happen. But by 1994, it's it's very clear you know basically a year into the Clinton administration that they have decided that they are going to stay the course on uh, Iraq. Uh, that Saddam is a brutal dictator. He is responsible for all sorts of humanitarian uh, crises and uh, crimes against humanity, genocide, they even say, right? Um, and that, you know, the United States is going to implement um, these UN resolutions. Um, and so, you know, the Iraqis, though, you know, by pointing out you know how bad the suffering is. Uh, they're gaining more and more support, right? Um, and you know they're getting more and more journalists to sort of tell the right stories because obviously, you know, if you're a journalist and you want a story, uh, if you want to report on Iraq, you kind of have to have the support of of the Iraqi um, uh, regime, right? Um, and so the Iraqi regime will pick out different journalists. Right, they'll, they'll find the journalists who are going to tell the right story, and those journalists will be allowed to have visas. Right, it's a bath party that's bathist Iraqi bathists that are operating in the United States are actually uh, recruiting 
these journalists. They're, the journalists have no idea that they're being recruited, but <laughs> they are, uh, at least in the records, it, it seems that way. Um, and they'll find the journalists that are going to tell the right story, and they will go, um, you know, get them visas to Iraq. They'll show them all around the country, you know, show them all the things that they want to see, and then come back, and they have uh, a great story. So the Iraqis are sort of planting stories uh, in the press, and they're getting more and more uh, traction on this as uh, the 1990s uh, go on. And, you know, Clinton is is is, is stuck between uh, these forces that are talking about these humanitarian issues in Iraq um, and wanting to continue to impose or show that these, you know, um, these U- these new tools at the UN, right? Sanctions, no-fly zones, everything else uh, can be used to to uh, enforce these UN resolutions uh, in Iraq. Um, but there, you know, again, m- momentum is, is slowly building in, in the United States. There's a groundswell uh, of opposition to U.S. policy. Um, it's also um, you know, coming from outside of the United States as well, because, you know, in places like France, for example, uh, the Iraqis have much more success, right? And so now the, the Americans are not just dealing, like Clinton administration is not just dealing with uh, this domestic sort of groundswell that, that's emerging of, of, of critiques of its policy in Iraq, but it's also getting a lot of diplomatic pressure um, from places like France or, or Russia, right? Uh, Russia actually recalls its ambassador to the U.S. for the first time since World War II um, over uh, over U.S. policy um, to to Iraq uh, in 1998. So you know the Clinton administration is in, is feeling you know more and more pressure uh, as it goes throughout the the um, the 1990s. By the time the Clinton administration leaves. Uh, the policy is basically is broken, right? Containment, the containment regime has been broken uh, inside of Iraq, um, and there's nothing that the Clinton administration can do uh, to reestablish uh, that policy. Very much slow but relentless having an impact. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, we've sort of mentioned in various places the Oil for Food program um, and what that enabled these influence operations to do, right? We talked in Russia about, hey, we're going to have some oil. That might be useful, right? Texas Congress people. Um, is there anything else we want to say about the Oil for Food program and the leverage that it gave these influence operations? Yeah, I mean, it was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous amount of leverage, maybe possibly the most important. You know, we could talk about, you know, all these sort of political operations and at the end of the day, you know, uh, having all of this oil and all this money um, is really going to uh, move people. So, you know, the oil for food program, what it is, is you know, after the Gulf War finishes, uh, as I mentioned, Iraq has been, you know, the infrastructure has been destroyed, right? There's been the strategic bombing campaign, which takes out, you know, power plants and, and water systems and all that kind of all that kinds of stuff and, and everyone realizes that Iraq needs to be rebuilt um, but the US is not happy with the idea again that Saddam has has survived and so the US doesn't want to allow Saddam to be the one to rebuild uh, Iraq because the US um, thinks that he will use this this money, you know, if he's allowed to use his own oil, his own money to to rebuild uh, his country, this will just reconsolidate his his power. And the U.S. was hoping um, that he wouldn't survive, right? Um, and so, 
there is a bit of a game of chicken that happens between the United States and um, and the Iraqis uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Gulf War, where the U.S. says, okay, uh, we want to be able to use Iraqi oil to rebuild the country, um, but it has to be run through the U.N., not through um, not not through the regime in Baghdad. Uh, and Baghdad, you know, Saddam basically says no. If that's the if those are the conditions, then we'll just let the Iraqi people suffer, uh, and we'll see, you know, who who blinks first, right? Uh, and interestingly enough, it's 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 the U.S. who who blinks who blinks first, right? Not you know, the, the U.S. actually cares more about the suffering of the Iraqi people uh, than the Iraqi leadership, which opens the way in 1995 um, to pass this oil for food program, where the Iraqis can. Uh, can use Iraqi oil money um, to rebuild their country. They can use it just as it sounds for food and medicine and, and humanitarian things like that. Uh, this this program is is, is hugely corrupt, right? Um, the Iraqis are paying off everybody, including the UN uh, official, right? <laughs> the UN official who was responsible for uh, uh, for making sure that the program wasn't corrupt was actually on the take uh, from from. Uh, from the Iraqis. Um, so what's interesting here, though, is what the Iraqis uh, do with this with this money. Um, they they have a few ways to manipulate the system. First, they will make uh, deals with states, organizations, people, uh, individuals, whoever companies, uh, and they will actually sell Iraqi oil at a loss. So the Iraqis will lose money initially when they start selling oil in, in the mid to late 1990s. They're, they're actually losing money on some of these oil deals, but it's it's an exchange, right? So it's oil for influence, right? So if, if you will support, uh, you know, if you're a French oil company or American oil company, and you will pressure your government to take uh, a certain stand, right? Or if you're a U.S. A former government official who's going to lobby uh, your government to take a certain stand at, uh, for Iraq at the UN, then um, they will give you, uh, you know, they'll allocate, the Iraqis would allocate that person or that organization um, a certain amount of oil at below market price so, so that they make a tremendous amount of, of money. There's a number of, of officials, especially in Europe uh, and France, uh, for example, uh, who were arrested, you know, uh, and, and uh, were convicted of, of, of bribes uh, during during this program. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, this becomes, you know, very important because if you're, you know, a major, you know, let's not be naive, right? Uh, in the West, these major corporations, especially these oil companies, have a lot of political influence over, over politicians because, you know they can they can bring all sorts of, of, of money for campaign finance and uh, and jobs and, and economic development and, and everything else and um, so the Iraqis are using these companies to um, to pressure Western governments in some places like in Russia for example I mean it's just overt I mean there's just planes full plane plane loads full of money that will just go right to uh, you know to a, a politician and the politician will just take that money uh, and then and do what the Iraqis uh, are are um or asking uh uh him or her to uh to do thank you for um explaining that i think the range of things is quite interesting the idea of kind of plane loads of money and people on bribes um definitely raises a whole bunch of questions right about this idea if there's going to be a rules-based order well hang on a second 
that requires a bunch of people buying in. And I think your answers have demonstrated sort of the number of ways that that ran into problems. Um, So obviously, we've not gone into every detail of the book. Unfortunately, we've not been able to, but hopefully we've done a decent job covering some of the main points, Um, which leads me only to ask my final question. Uh, This book is just out. So this is maybe slightly absurd. But now that it is available for people to read all those details, is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next? Um, so I, I have, you know, a few small projects uh, that, that are dealing, you know, maybe offshoots, I guess you could call this, and then, uh, and then something moving on to later. So the, the offshoots are, you know, um, Oxford has this this series called uh, Very Short Introductions. You can see them at the bookstores. They're sort of meant for a popular audience, very short introduction to philosophy or whatever else, right? Uh, And so um, I have a contract and I'm writing one right now, a very short introduction to the Iraq wars, um, plural. Uh, So it's, um, you know, basically the American wars in in Iraq from 1990 to 2018. So the Gulf War, sanctions, Iraq War, you know, insurgency through ISIS and and looking at that as as a kind of one extended, uh, which I think a lot of historians are beginning to see it in this way um, as one, as opposed to just different wars as one, one sort of extended campaign or one, one, one war, right. The way you might, I think people will probably look back on this period, you know, like the wars of German unification or Napoleonic wars or something like that. Yes. They're all separate little incidents, but it's really, you know, there, there's a, there's a, you know, clear connections, um, uh, between them. So I'm doing that. Um, and then I'm working, uh, with some folks, um, this summer, actually, we're, up at the Hoover Institution, which houses these Iraqi archives, um, we're going to bring together uh, myself and a, a professor at, at Stanford named Lisa Blades. Uh, we're going to bring together everyone who has been working on uh, these Iraqi archives, work with these Iraqi archives for the past decade plus. Uh, and so we have a big conference coming up uh, at Stanford this summer, and we're hoping that um, this is going to also become a uh, uh, an edited volume. Um, so those are some of the things I'm just kind of tying up, you know, uh, with what I'm doing. And then eventually I'm, I'm beginning to look more and more at the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and so I think uh, over the next few years, I'm going to increasingly uh, focus on that. Interesting. All right. Well, best of luck with all of those projects. And while you're off doing them, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Iraq Against the World, Saddam, America and the Post-Cold War Order, published by Oxford University Press. Samuel, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.